Well, if you would, go ahead and turn with me now to the book of Romans. The book of Romans in chapter 3 is where we are in these days in our verse-by-verse study of this book. Romans chapter 3. Um, if you know much about Romans 3, the fact that we are there ought to make you very happy. It is a wonderful chapter indeed. Um, many have called it the Mount Everest of the Bible. So these are, are happy days. We're, we're not yet at the, uh, the mountaintop section of Romans 3, but we're getting there. We're, we're laying the necessary groundwork for that part of Romans 3 to be very precious to us. But this morning we are in Romans 3 verses 9 and 10. So look with me at Romans 3 verses 9 and 10. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. This epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament. The very purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. Those are not my words about Romans. Those are Martin Luther's words. Martin Luther went on to say about this book of Romans, it can never be read or pondered too much, and the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. I hope those words will serve as a reminder to us. I hope they will remind us how blessed we are to have this letter in our Bibles and how precious this time of us studying it together should be. (coughs) Apologize for coughing with a microphone. It occurred to me this week that we've just now come back to this book. We took some time in Genesis and the life of Abraham and so we've only recently returned and I thought it might be helpful then for us to for me to remind us uh, what's going on in this letter. Why did Paul write this letter? I want to remind you of that because I think it will help you better understand what he's doing in these verses. Uh, The church in Rome at the time that Paul is writing to them appears to have been made up of a mixture of Gentiles and Jews. Now, the majority at this time, we think, was probably Gentile, but there was a substantial number of Jews in this church. And so you have Christian Gentiles and Christian Jews seeking to live their lives of faith together as a church. Paul had never been to this church. Paul does not know the vast majority of the people in this church. He's never met them. And yet, they are very precious to him. Indeed, the church in Rome was very precious to all of the churches of the first century. This was a special church. And the reason is because it was in Rome, the capital of the empire. This church was special Because it was in the city where the emperor lived. 
and where all of the power of the empire rested. The Christians of the first centuries experienced a a wave of persecution and then a wave of relief. A wave of persecution and then a wave of relief. And how Christians throughout the empire were going to be treated depended largely on the emperor of the day and his view towards these followers of Christ. And so, so much depended upon these Christians in Rome. The reputation of the Christians in Rome. These were the Christians that the people in Rome, including the leaders of Rome, that they would come in contact with. The people in Rome did know about the church in Rome. Remember, Nero uh, blamed the burning of Rome on the Christians. Remember that? And so they knew about this church that was there. And so much depended on how they were received and how they were uh, understood by the rest of their city. Um, It occurred to me this week that at least occasionally when we do our missions moments, uh, we ought to be praying for churches like Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Because if we long to see our president and our senators and our representatives and the lobbyists, and if, if we long to see these people crafting policies that are going to be a blessing to the church of Christ and not a hindrance to the church of Christ, we should be praying for the Christians that those people are going to be in contact with on a regular basis. And for those career politicians who spend so much of their lives in Washington, D.C., What are the churches that they are going to know? Who are the churches that they're going to be coming in contact with? It is the churches in our own nation's capital. It is those churches, churches like Capitol Hill, that have the greatest opportunity to show what a church is and to show the gospel of Christ and the love of Christ to those who are in key positions in our nation. So we ought to be praying for the churches in our capital the way that the Christians of the early church were constantly praying for the church in Rome because of its strategic location and because of the possibility of the key influence it could have on the rest of the church worldwide. But there's another reason that the church in Rome was so important and why it was so precious to Paul and to other Christians of the day. Rome, as the capital, was also the center of trade and commerce. And many, many people from all over the ancient world came through Rome for business, which means Rome was important missiologically. Rome was important for the cause of missions. The church in Rome could share the gospel with visitors from all sorts of different backgrounds, all sorts of different people groups and uh, ethnic heritages. They could share the gospel with these people, and then these people would be able to go back to their homelands and take the gospel with them. Through Rome, the ancient world could be reached with the gospel. And so part of the reason Paul wrote this letter, and it is his Magna Carta, I mean, it is a great letter, part of the reason in which Paul writes this letter in which he he unpacks the height and the width and the depth and the length of, of his message that God has entrusted him with, part of the reason is he wants to be of real spiritual help to this church. He's never met them, but he knows how important they are to the cause of Christ and he wants to be of some use to them. He wants to be of some benefit to them. 
He tried to visit them on several occasions, by the way. Uh, if you remember from Romans 1, he, he tells us there were several times he tried to visit this church to be of help to them face to face. And yet God in his providence did not allow Paul to go. And so he wants to be of help. And then also, always in the back of Paul's mind is Spain. Paul wants to go to Spain. Paul wants to take the gospel, as he says later in Romans, he wants to take the gospel where the name of Jesus has not yet been named. Right uh, On this side of Rome, on the eastern side of Rome, things are happening. The gospel is spreading. It's going into northern Africa. It's going out towards the Orient. But on the other side of Rome, into Europe, there's so little gospel influence in Paul's day. He wants to go. But if he's going to go take the gospel where the name of Jesus has not yet been named, if he's going to go into Spain and beyond, he's going to be going a long ways from Jerusalem. He's going to be going a long ways from those churches that have been supporting him and been helping him. He's going to need a group of Christians to serve as his home base, to serve as his support group. And so part of the reason Paul wrote this letter was to help the church in Rome know who he is, to know what this message is that he's been entrusted with, so that there may be a day when they will partner with him and help send him out towards Spain with the gospel. And so for the good of this church and in the hopes of a future partnership that will see unreached peoples reached with the gospel, Paul writes this letter. You remember in Romans 1, verse 16, he gave us the thesis of the letter. Romans 1, 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. The whole book of Romans is about the gospel and what it means for God to save people through the gospel. What is salvation? How does salvation come about? What does it mean to live as a saved person? Uh, why are so many Gentiles being saved and so few Jews? These are the kinds of questions that Paul wants this church to understand. And so, these are the questions that he tackles in the book of Romans. He wants Christians to understand salvation. And in verse 18 of chapter 1, verse 18 of chapter 1, Paul begins with a very, very important part of his message, namely, the depravity of man. Step one in understanding the gospel and salvation is understanding that all people everywhere need the gospel and salvation. In chapter 1, Paul not only shows that all people everywhere are under the wrath of God, but he shows how terribly sin has affected the human race, how rebellious our hearts are. He talks about the consequences that sin has had on our thinking and on our wills and on our actions. From Romans 1.18 through the end of chapter 1, we have a very unflattering picture of the human race. We are exposed as sinners under the wrath of God. Chapter 2, Paul takes aim at those who claim to be the exception. 
And in particular, he seems to take aim at his own kinsmen, the Jews. He wants his fellow Jews to understand that they too are under the wrath of God, that they are sinners in need of a Savior. He wants even his fellow Jewish Christians who might still be struggling with this because they've been taught since they were little kids that they were okay with God because they had Abraham's blood in their veins or because they had the the sign of circumcision or because they were the ones entrusted with the law. They might not understand. They might be confused about this. Paul wants them to understand that Jews as well as Gentiles are under the wrath of God. He deals with some objections and then he brings his case about the depravity of man home in our verse. Chapter 3, verse 9, it's very clear. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And so there it is. All are under sin. All are under the dominion of sin. All have hearts and minds given over to sin. Human beings are not the victims of sin. No, we are sinners. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. It is who we are. Now please understand, he is talking about all human beings apart from the saving work of God. We're not thinking yet about Christians. We're not thinking yet about what happens to a person when they're saved. We're talking about all humanity apart from Christ, apart from the saving work of God. Were there no Jesus? Were there no gospel? Were there no Holy Spirit to change hearts? This is who we are. All under sin. The Jews are not better off than the Gentiles in this way. They were better off in other ways. Paul already mentioned that they did indeed have the Word of God and what a privilege that was. But when it comes to standing before God, Jews and Gentiles are in the same ship. And it's the ship of unrighteousness. It's the ship of being guilty before God. Now, Paul is bringing this first part of his argument to a close. He was bringing his argument about the depravity of man to its climax to prepare us for the Mount Everest that's about to come in the following verses. And the way he brings his argument to a close is by quoting Old Testament text after Old Testament text. Verse 10, verse 11, verse 12, verse 13, verse 14, verse 15, verse 16, verse 17, and verse 18 are all... Old Testament quotations that Paul uses to show that what he is teaching is not new. He is showing that what he is teaching now in Romans is what God has been teaching for centuries through the Old Testament Scriptures. So as we look at this list of quotations, and this is, this is our task for today and next week and probably the next week, is to work our way through this close of Paul's case about the depravity of man and all of these Old Testament quotations. But as we look at them, I want you to see that Paul is emphasizing two things. There are two things that stand above everything else. Number one, 
He's emphasizing the universality of sin. Everybody say universality. Alright, it means everybody. It means sin, the depravity of man uh, is comprehensive. There are no exceptions. Please don't sit here today and think you are an exception. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No exceptions. No exception here. Sorry. We are all sinners. You see him emphasizing that none is righteous. No, not one. Later he says no one does good. Not even one. Now, obviously, the Lord Jesus Christ is an exception, right? Jesus is righteous. Jesus is good. But, but Paul doesn't have the Lord Jesus Christ in view here. He's concerned for people like you and me who might harbor in our hearts the secret belief that somehow we're different, that somehow we're not really that bad. So he's emphasizing the universality of sin, that all people need the gospel, that all people need salvation because we're all under sin. And then second, and within these quotations, Paul is emphasizing the extent of sin in our lives. Everybody say extent. Alright, so we have the universality, we have the extent of sin. He wants us to, to understand, and I think the way he uses short verse after short verse after short, I think he wants us to feel the weight of what he's saying about the extent of our sinfulness. Um, this is what theologians call total depravity. And it doesn't mean that we're utterly sinful. It doesn't mean we're as bad as we could be. We're not as bad as we could be. Thank God there is such a thing as common grace that restrains our sinful hearts. If God did not show common grace to every human being restraining sinful hearts and restraining sinful wills, we could be a whole lot worse. Every human being would be a Hitler or worse were not for the grace of God restraining sinful desires. Total depravity does not mean that we are utterly wicked. But what it does mean is that there is not a part of us that is not touched and tainted by sin. There is no part of your life that is not touched and tainted by sin. As you look at these quotations, as you look at these verses, you will see that Paul talks about our hearts. He talks about our wills. He talks about our minds. He talks about our words. He talks about our actions. And he uses all of these facets of who we are and says, this is unrighteous. This is ungodly. This is not good. All of these things are touched and tainted by sin. There is no part of you that is clean. It's not that my heart is wicked, but my mind is pure. No. It's not that our words are wicked, but our actions are pure. No. Every aspect of our nature and our lives is touched by sin. That is what it means to be totally depraved. Now, as we go through these quotations over the next couple of weeks, I want you to remember that good news is coming. We are not here to become depressed. <laughs> I do not want us to meditate on how sinful we are and just leave hanging our head, right, with... Um, 
Never mind. Okay, so I, I don't want that to happen. I, I want you to remember he's doing this because he wants us to be all the more thankful when he gets to verses 21 and 22 and 23. Right? He wants us to rejoice in the gospel. And so that's what we're doing. Um, there is only one paragraph between this litany about our depravity and the Mount Everest of the Bible. Um, the truth of salvation in Christ and all the good news that's going to follow in Romans 4 and Romans 5 and Romans 6 and Romans 7 and Romans 8, all of that is coming. So as we think about our sinfulness, let your sinfulness point you to Christ and let it point you to the great salvation that is in Him. Now, here's the outline for the next two weeks. We're just going to get started on it today. We're going to look at each statement in these Old Testament quotations. And here are the questions we're going to, or the way we're going to look at each one. We're going to, one, identify where it came from. Where did Paul get that? What's he quoting? Identify where the quotation came from. Two, talk about what it means. And then three, mention some implications. One, where did it come from? Two, what does it mean? Three, what are some implications? Today, we're only going to look at the first statement. Verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. What is Paul quoting here? Where did this come from? Now, you have to remember, there were no chapter numbers in Paul's day. There were no verse numbers in Paul's day. So there are no references. Paul didn't write this and then leave a, a reference in the manuscript. And so it's up to us to figure out where Paul is getting this, this quotation that he says is written. However, it's really not that difficult to see where these first statements came from. Uh, they came from Psalm 14, 1 through 3. And I want you to listen to Psalm 14, 1 through 3, because clearly it was important to Paul because he quotes much of it here. Listen to Psalm 14, 1 through 3. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from the heavens on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, if there are any who seek after God. But they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. Not even one. Now, it should be obvious to you that Paul is not quoting that word for word here, is he? There was a lot that I said there that's not in these quotations. So he's not quoting word for word. Rather, he's assuming that we're familiar with that passage. And he's reminding us of snippets from that passage that he thinks are important. And the first snippet that he brings to our attention is that none is righteous, no, not one. The psalm uses the word good. There is none who are good. But Paul uses the word righteous. <coughs> Sorry. Uh, he may have a verse from Ecclesiastes in the back of his mind. Listen to this one. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on the earth. And so he's using this word righteous and saying there is none righteous, no, not one. Where does it come from? Psalm 14, 1 through 3. Now, that's one. Two, what does it mean? What does it mean that none are righteous? Well, 
Other statements are going to talk about our thoughts and our words and our actions. But this statement talks about who we are. Okay? Other statements are going to talk about uh, what flows out of this. But this is the core. This, this verse 10 is what makes verse 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 true. It is because of who we are that our thoughts are wicked and our words are wicked and our deeds are wicked. Why do men and women not understand the things of God? Why do men and women not seek good things? Why do they use their tongues to deceive? Why do they use their feet to violence? Answer, because all human beings are unrighteous. The natural human being is ungood, impure, non-virtuous. Oprah Winfrey is just wrong. And that's just all there is to it. Our society wants people to think that human beings are naturally good at heart. Our society says that the only reason people lie, the only reason people steal, the only reason people abuse is that they are victims of their circumstances. That is not God's assessment. God's assessment is not that we are victims. God's assessment is that we are criminals who are corrupt at heart. Our hearts are not clean. Our motives are not pure. This is what it means to be a son or a daughter of Adam. And if you do not know this about yourself, you do not know yourself. So, what are some implications? What are some implications? I'm going to mention three. Implication one is that all human beings are by nature enemies of God. Because we are unrighteous and God is righteous, all human beings are by nature enemies of God. Later, Paul will say that explicitly, that we by nature are enemies of God. Some things do not mix together well. Okay? Oil and water. Fire and gas. Right? Put those together. Right? The righteousness of God and the unrighteousness of man do not mix. God is good. And he loves all that is right, and he loves all that is pure, and he loves it with an infinite love. And here we are, and we stand for everything that is not right. We stand for everything that is not pure. You and I stand before God as liars, as manipulators. We use these bodies that God has so graciously given us for evil. We complain rather than give thanks. We use these tongues that God has given us to put down others, to hurt others. The greatest commandment of all is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We fail at the very first and greatest commandment, and therefore we fail at all the others. Every other thing that we do that we might call a good deed, is as a filthy rag before God because it is tainted with rebellion against Him. Folks, did you know that Satan can say nice things sometimes? Did you know that Satan can treat people kindly when he's trying to woo them to his ways? But every nice thing that Satan says and every kind act that he performs is not really nice at all and not really kind at all because it's all for his purpose of rebelling against the true God. And so it is with us. 
You might point to some deed and say, well, well that, person, that person did something good. That person said a kind word. That, that person did a good deed. But folks, that kind word or that good deed is not really kind and not really good if it's all part of a life being lived in rebellion against God. If loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is not there, there is no good. As Paul will later say in the book of Romans, everything that does not proceed from faith is sin. That's why our best acts are like filthy rags to God. If this is who we are, what does it mean for a God who is too pure than to even look upon evil? If we are sinners, what does it mean for a God who cannot bear wickedness before Him? It means that God in His goodness is against us. And God will rightly condemn us for all eternity. Because He is righteous. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. Folks, we must not entertain any notion that unrighteous people can go to heaven. Do not entertain that notion. 1 Corinthians 6.9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? God's heaven will not have unrighteousness in its midst. The only hope that any human being has is that somehow we who are unrighteous can have our unrighteousness taken away and be made righteous. That is our only hope. Second implication. The righteousness that we need cannot be found in ourselves. The righteousness that we need cannot be found in ourselves. The statement says, there is none righteous, no, not one. Which means, if we must be righteous to be accepted by God, I cannot look in myself and try and find that righteousness. I cannot say, I am going to try harder. I am going to fix myself. I am going to reform my ways. I am going to change my behavior. Folks, you don't have it in you. An unrighteous person cannot make himself righteous. You don't have the righteousness in you. If the roots of an apple tree are poisoned, you can cut down the weak branches and the rotten fruit all you want and try again and again to see good fruit come. It won't come because the roots are poisoned. If unrighteous is who we are at our core, at our heart, you can change your behavior all you want. You're only trading sin for sin. Don't fill yourselves by putting away sins of your youth and replacing them with more acceptable sins of adulthood and think that you've grown. You can't fix yourself. The righteousness we need cannot be found in ourselves. 
This is contrary to the teaching of Islam. This is contrary to the teaching of the other religions of this world. It was, it was about this time last year that I told you guys about a conversation that myself and some friends had with a, a Muslim man. And he was explaining to us that the key to being right with Allah is to make sure your good deeds outweigh your bad. He told us a story about how one noble deed could outweigh a whole lifetime of wicked deeds. According to Islam, you have what it takes to make yourself right in the eyes of Allah. But Allah is not God. He's a myth. And the true God does not look on your outward behavior. The true God looks at the heart. And you do not have what it takes to make your heart righteous. The consistent teaching of the Bible is that we are incapable of making ourselves righteousness. The righteousness we need cannot be found in ourselves. Implication number three. Our only hope is an alien righteousness. Our only hope is an alien righteousness. Now, if you've not heard me use that term before, I am not talking about little green men. I'm not talking about righteousness from, from Mars. The word alien simply means something foreign to us. Right? This is a word that theologians use, alien righteousness, as a way of saying the righteousness that we must have if we're to be right with God and if we're to be saved is a righteousness that must come from outside of ourselves. I can look to my heart all I want. I will never find it there. I must look outside of myself to someone, to anything that can make me righteous. I need an alien righteousness. This is what the gospel is all about. The bad news is that all are unrighteous before a holy God. The good news, Romans 3, 21 and 22. Look at it, Romans 3, 21 and 22. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Dear friend, the great news of the gospel is that God gives His own righteousness to unrighteous people through faith in Jesus. There is a way for you and me and every human being to be right with God. There is a way for Him to be holy and for you and I to be pure and good in His sight. To be accepted by Him. Jesus Christ was and is God in human flesh. Jesus lived out the very righteousness of God. He was the only human being who ever lived in perfect righteousness every thought he had, every word he spoke, every deed he performed was perfect and pure. And then in perfect obedience to his Father, Jesus willingly laid down his perfect life on the cross. The life of goodness culminating in this final act of love and faith and obedience towards God
was a pleasant aroma to his father. You and I in our wickedness are a stitch in the nose of God. But Jesus in His perfect obedience was a pleasant aroma to His Father. God's holy heart, which loves all that is good, beheld the infinite goodness of His Son and rejoiced over His Son and loved His Son. And for all eternity, God is loving the perfect righteousness of the Son. And when you or I become united to Jesus through faith, His perfect righteousness becomes ours. Is that not unbelievable? Almost unbelievable. Unbelievable apart from the Spirit of God causing you to believe it. used this illustration before. It's the only one I know that, that, uh, that helps me understand it in some ways. Maybe it's helpful. It's like you and I having nothing but F's on our report card. And when we stand before God with our report card full of F's, we are worthy of His wrath. Jesus came and lived out an all A's report card life. Perfect in every way. And at the cross... Jesus bore the punishment for us that our all F report card deserved. 1 Peter 3.18 Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. The only person in the world not deserving God's wrath bore God's wrath for all who would turn to Him and trust Him. Jesus has borne the wrath of God fully for Christians. But what's more, listen carefully, the very moment we trust Jesus and begin following Jesus, the perfect righteousness of our Savior is credited to us. At the cross, y'all with me? At the cross, our life of sin was credited to Jesus. God punished Jesus for our sins. The moment we believe on Jesus, God credits us with Jesus' righteousness. When the Father looks at a Christian, he sees our sins no longer. They've been paid for. He sees only the righteousness of Christ. Just as God covered the nakedness of Adam and Eve with the skins from animals He had sacrificed, so He sacrificed His Son and now covers Christians with the very righteousness of Christ. When a person believes on Jesus, this is, this is good, when a person believes on Jesus and has the very righteousness of Jesus imputed to him legally, that very moment, the Spirit of God comes to dwell in that Christian to begin making that Christian what he's just been declared to be. Before God, legally speaking, if you are a Christian, you right now are righteous in the sight of God. Did you know that about you? Right now, Christian, because of Christ, you are righteous in the sight of God. And the Spirit of God is in you right now, slowly, gradually making you what you've already been declared to be. On my report card, before God, 
is every perfect word and deed that Christ ever spoke and did. Let me say it this way. This is, this is helpful, I think. On my report card before God is every word, every perfect word that Christ ever spoke. And by His Spirit, I'm learning to use my tongue for good. On my report card before God is every perfect deed that Christ ever did. And by His Spirit, I am learning to do good in this life. On my report card before God is every perfect thought that Christ had as He walked this earth. And by God's Spirit, I am beginning to learn to think godly thoughts. By Christ, I have been declared to be holy. And by the Spirit of Christ, I am being made holy. And on the day I die, or Christ comes back, whichever comes first, I will stand before God, both legally righteous because of Christ, and actually righteous because of the Spirit of Christ, and my sins will be as far away from me as the East is from the West. That's my hope. Is that your hope? Is that what you're resting in? This is my hope, that my unrighteousness is gone from before the eyes of God. That my unrighteousness is being ripped out of me by the work of the Spirit of God. And that I will stand blameless and holy before God on the day of judgment. That I will be welcomed to live with God in heaven forever. And that I will give glory to Him and that I will never stop giving glory to Him because He has done it all and I deserve none of it. That is the glorious news of Christianity. This is the gospel. I don't care how vile you are or what you've done, you can be right with God. There is a grace that is greater than all your sins. And it's only through Jesus Christ. Earlier we sang the hymn, Come ye sinners, poor and wretched. I want to close by just repeating some of the verses of that hymn. And I want you to hear the words of that hymn as an invitation this very day to go to Jesus in your heart and be saved. Listen to the words. Come, ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. He is able. He is able. He is able. And He is willing. Doubt no more. Come ye weary and heavy laden. You who are bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry, that is if you wait till you are better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous. Not the righteous. Not the righteous. Sinners Jesus came to call. That whole verse is about, don't try and fix yourself. Come as you are. He didn't come to save the righteous. He came to save sinners like you and me. Don't fix yourself. Go to Him. Third verse. or Third one I'm quoting. Let not conscience make you linger, nor fitness fondly dream. All the fitness He requireth is that you feel your need of Him. It's all that's required to be saved is that you know you need Him. This He gives you. This He gives you. This He gives you. Tis the Spirit's rising beam. May the Spirit of God call some in here, even today, to know for the first time their great need of Christ and to call out on Him for salvation. Last verse. 
Lo, that is, behold, see, the incarnate God ascended. Talking about Jesus. He pleads the merits of His blood. Venture on Him. Venture wholly. Let no other trust intrude. None but Jesus. None but Jesus. None but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. Dear friends, there is salvation in Jesus Christ for all who see their need of Him and run to Him for their righteousness before God. Will you run to Him today and every day and know Him as your righteousness? Let us pray. So at this point, let's all just take a few moments and talk quietly with the Father. If you need to run to Him for salvation, I pray you will. If you know Christ as your Savior, then take these moments to thank Him with all your heart that 